Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratam Data. A Child's History of England, by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratam Data. Just a quick recap. So Henry the First has died, and now Stephen has come to become the usurper of the English throne. Now, Stephen's mother, Adela, was the daughter of William the Conqueror, so he wanted the throne. On the other hand, Matilda, his cousin, who was in France, also wanted the throne and became the Queen of England and started a civil war. And Stephen reigned anyway, came over, fought, won, and got reinstated ruled from 1135 until around around about 1154 and then died and this is where we begin chapter 12 england under henry the second part the first henry plantagenet when he was but 21 years old quietly succeeded to the throne of england according to his agreement made with the late King of Winchester. Six weeks after Stephen's death, he and his queen Eleanor were crowned in that city, into which they rode on horseback in great state, side by side, amidst much shouting and rejoicing, and clashing of music, and strewing of flowers. The reign of King Henry II began well. The king had great possessions, and what was his own rights, and what with those of his wife, was lord of one-third part of France. He was a young man of vigour, ability, and resolution, and immediately applied himself to remove some of the evils which had arisen in the last unhappy reign. He revoked all the grants of land that had been hastily made on either side during the late struggles, he obliged numbers of disorderly soldiers to depart from England. He reclaimed all the castles belonging to the crown, and he forced the wicked nobles to pull down their own castles to the number of 1,100 in which such dismal cruelties had been inflicted on the people. The king's brother, Geoffrey, rose against him in France while he was so well employed and rendered it necessary for him to repair to that country where, after he had subdued and made a friendly arrangement with his brother, who did not live long, his ambition to increase his possessions involved him in a war with the French King Louis, with whom he had been on such friendly terms just before that to the French King's infant daughter, then a baby in the cradle, he had promised one of his little sons in marriage, who was a child of five years old. However, the war came to nothing at last, and the Pope made the two kings friends again. Now the clergy, in the troubles of the last reign, had gone on very ill indeed. There were all kinds of criminals amongst them, murderers, thieves and vagabonds, and the worst of the matter was that the good priest would not give up the bad priest to justice when they committed crimes, but persisted in sheltering and defending them. The king 
well knowing that there could be no peace or rest in England while such things lasted, resolved to reduce the power of the clergy and, when he had reigned seven years, found, as he considered, a good opportunity for doing so in the death of the Archbishop of Canterbury. I will have for the new Archbishop, thought the King, a friend in whom I can trust, who will help me to humble these rebellious priests and to have them dealt with when they do wrong, as other men who do wrong are dealt with. So he resolved to make his favourite the new Archbishop, and this favourite was so extraordinary a man, and his story is so curious that I must tell you all about him. Once upon a time, a worthy merchant of London named Gilbert A. Beckett made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and was taken prisoner by a Saracen lord. This lord, who treated him kindly and not like a slave, had one fair daughter who fell in love with the merchant and who told him that she wanted to become a Christian and was willing to marry him if they could fly to a Christian country. The merchant returned her love until he found an opportunity to escape, when he did not trouble himself about the Saracen lady, but escaped with his servant Richard, who had been taken prisoner along with him, and arrived in England and forgot her. The Saracen lady, who was more loving than the merchant, left her father's house in disguise to follow him, and made her way under many hardships to the seashore. The merchant had taught her only two English words, for I suppose he must have learned the Saracen tongue himself and made love in that language, of which London was one and his own name Gilbert the other. She went among the ships saying, London, London, over and over again, until the sailors understood that she wanted to find an English vessel that would carry her there. So they showed her such a ship, and she paid for her passage with some of her jewels and sailed away. Well, the merchant was sitting in his counting house in London one day, when he heard a great noise in the street, and presently Richard came running in from the warehouse, with his eyes wide open and his breath almost gone, saying, Master, master, here is the Saracen lady. The merchant thought Richard was mad, but Richard said, No, master, as I live, the Saracen lady is going up and down the city, calling Gilbert, Gilbert. Then he took the merchant by the sleeve and pointed out of window, and there they saw her among the gables and water spots of the dark, dirty street, in a foreign dress, so forlorn, surrounded by a wandering crowd, and passing slowly along, calling, Gilbert, Gilbert. When the merchant saw her, and thought of the tenderness she had shown him in his captivity, and of her constancy, his heart was moved, and he ran down into the street, and she saw him coming, and with a great cry fainted in his arms. They were married without loss of time, and Richard, who was an excellent man, danced with joy the whole day of the wedding, and they all lived happy ever afterwards.
This merchant and this Saracen lady had one son, Thomas A. Beckett. He it was who became the favourite of King Henry II. He had become Chancellor when the King thought of making him Archbishop. He was clever, gay, well-educated, brave, had fought in several battles in France, had defeated a French knight in single combat and brought his horse away as a token of the victory. He lived in a noble palace, he was the tutor of the young Prince Henry, he was served by 140 knights, his riches were immense. The king once sent him as an ambassador to France, and the French people, beholding in what state he travelled, cried out in the streets, How splendid must the king of England be, when this is only the chancellor! They had good reason to wonder at the magnificence of Thomas of Becket, for, when he entered a French town, his procession was headed by 250 singing boys, then came his hounds in couples, then eight wagons, each drawn by five horses driven by five drivers, two of the wagons filled with strong ale to be given away to the people, four with his gold and silver plate and stately clothes, two with the dresses of his numerous servants. Then came twelve horses, each with a monkey on his back, then a train of people bearing shields and leading fine war horses, splendidly equipped, then falconers and hawks upon their wrists, then a host of knights and gentlemen and priests, then the chancellor with his brilliant garments flashing in the sun and all the people capering and shouting with delight. The king was well pleased with all this, thinking that it only made himself the more magnificent to have so magnificent a favourite. But he sometimes jested with the Chancellor upon his splendour too. Once, when they were riding together through the streets of London in hard winter weather, they saw a shivering old man in rags. Look at the poor object, said the king. Would it not be a charitable act to give that aged man a comfortable warm cloak? Undoubtedly it would, said Thomas A. Beckett, and you would too well, sir, to think of such Christian duties. Come, cried the king, then give him your cloak. It was made of rich crimson, trimmed with ermine. The king tried to pull it off, and the chancellor tried to keep it on. Both were near rolling from their saddles in the mud, when the chancellor submitted, and the king gave the cloak to the old beggar. Much to the beggar's astonishment, and much to the merriment of all the courtiers in attendance. For courtiers are not only eager to laugh when the king laughs, but they really do enjoy a laugh against a favourite. I will make, thought King Henry II, this Chancellor of mine, Thomas A. Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury. He will then be the head of the church and being devoted to me will help me correct the church. He has always upheld my power against the power of the clergy, and once publicly told some bishops, I remember, that men of the church were equally bound to me with men of the sword. 
Thomas A. Beckett is the man and all other men in England to help me in my great design. So the king, regardless of all objection, either that he was a fighting man or a lavish man or a coatly man or a man of pleasure or anything but a likely man for the office, made him archbishop accordingly. Now Thomas A. Beckett was proud and loved to be famous. He was already famous for the pomp of his life, for his riches, his gold and silver plate, his wagons, horses and attendants. He could do no more in that way than he had done. And being tired of that kind of fame, which is a very poor one, he longed to have his name celebrated for something else. Nothing he knew would render him so famous in the world as the setting of his utmost power and ability against the utmost power and ability of the king. He resolved with the whole strength of his mind to do it. He may have had some secret grudge against the king besides. The king may have offended his proud humour at some time or other for anything I know. I think it likely, because it is a common thing for kings, princes and other great people to try the tempers of their favourites rather severely. Even the little affair of the crimson cloak must have been anything but a pleasant one to a haughty man. Thomas A. Beckett knew better than anyone in England what the king expected of him. In all his sumptuous life, he had never been in a position to disappoint the king. He could take up that proud stand now as head of the church and he determined that it should be written in history either that he subdued the king or that the king subdued him. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.